can I take a minute? I'm going to distract a little bit from the worship that we just had. It was wonderful, but can I talk for a second about Facebook? I know, that's, that's a really big deviation, but, you know, Facebook these days is used for everything. And some things it's used for is really good. Other things, not so much. People do everything on Facebook, and some things that they do are wonderful. Some things are joyful. Some things are even delightful. For instance, people have been very clever when announcing the arrival of a new baby. Have you noticed that? In fact, <clears throat> I can't believe it's been four years, but, but back in 2018, our family actually put together a picture that we posted on Facebook, and it was a picture of our shoes. It was a pair for me, my wife Heather, my daughters Kier and Abigail, and my son Zeke, and then we had an extra pair indicating that Annalise was coming. And it was exciting, and it was fun, and we enjoyed doing that. And I wonder, how would God have announced the arrival of Jesus on Facebook? I can picture just a picture of an empty manger with a cloth slung over the side. Maybe, maybe not. Facebook wasn't a thing back in the New Testament, probably for the better. Even still, I think God's way of announcing the birth of his son trumps any way that we do it today. Would you agree with that? God's announcement trumps any way that we have announced the coming of our children, as exciting as those moments are. This morning's text, I'm sure, is very familiar to you. Perhaps, like me, you can't help but think of Linus when you hear or read this passage. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you need to go home after church and watch the original Charlie Brown Christmas. God announces the birth of his son, Jesus, and like a proud father, God could not help but let people know of the birth of his son. This morning, we're going to look at the announcement for the, of the Messiah. We're continuing our series, our Advent series, The Messiah is Coming, and we're going to look at the announcement of the Messiah, and I want to give you three truths about the announcement of the Messiah from the Gospel of Luke. So if you haven't already, would you turn to the Gospel of Luke, and as you're doing so, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background on this Gospel. The author of Luke is actually not identified, however, church tradition and internal evidence from the book of Acts strongly suggests that it was Luke. Now, Luke was a Gentile. He traveled with Paul. And as I just indicated, he also wrote the book of Acts. He was a physician by trade. And from chapter 1 of the book of Luke, we see that his purpose in writing was that he was, to, he was trying to set out an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Luke was well-educated, and if you've read the book of Luke, you can probably see that in his writing. And one of the main emphases of the gospel of Luke is this. The gospel was meant for all. That's one of his main thrusts with the book. It's meant for all Jew and Gentile alike. So with that, let's read beginning in verse 8 of chapter 2. Will you read along with me? And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by nights. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
Now, the first thing that we see here is that we're told that this is happening in the same region. What region? What are we talking about? Where are we talking about? Well, this region is near Bethlehem. See, we're told earlier in the chapter that Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. He came back to his roots, in other words, to register with his family, with his wife, according to Caesar's order. Bethlehem, you may know, is in the southern part of Israel. It's not far from Jerusalem, and that's where we are, in that region, in that surrounding area. And it's in this area that we meet our shepherds. Shepherds are watching their flocks at night. It's an occupational hazard. Sheep had to be watched constantly, day or night, or they would just wander off and be food for carnivores. That's where we are, and that's who we're dealing with. Now, it's, it's interesting. Daily life is just happening. They're just doing their thing, and an angel shows up. An angel shows up to the shepherds. And it's interesting that the angel, or rather God, chooses to reveal his message to shepherds because shepherds were considered lowly due to their occupation. They were even thought to be untrustworthy and ceremonially unclean because they spent so much time with dirty animals. That was a big thing to Jews, to be ceremonially ceremonially unclean. The word outcast might be a bit too strong to describe shepherds in this day and age, but it's not a far-off description. And that's significant because the announcement for the birth of Jesus Christ came first to those who were low on the social scale. But to God, it didn't matter who they were. Your first point from our text this morning is this. The gospel is meant for all. The gospel is meant for all. I'm sorry, the announcement is meant for all. The announcement was meant for everyone. It didn't come to the elites. It didn't come to the upper class. It didn't even come to Caesar's palace. It came to lowly shepherds. Here are these shepherds working third shift, and an angel appears. Now, this is the third time, by the way. We're in chapter 2 of the book of Luke, and this is the third time an angel appears. The third time the angel appears. In chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and then to Mary. And this time, the angel's unidentified, but he appears to shepherds. Now, the idea behind the word appear here is to come near without intention of harming. To come near without the intention of harming. Here comes this angel, and there's no intention of harm. And he comes to bring a message. But you know what? The the angel here is not the only magnificent thing going on. It's easy to miss, but but read the rest of that verse, verse 8. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. The angel shows up and the glory. These are two different things. An angel shows up and the glory of the Lord shone around them. What is the glory of? Of the Lord. I heard a pastor say once that glory is to God as light is to bulb, 
as heat is to flame. It's what emanates from God. In fact, Exodus 24, 17 describes the glory of God like a devouring fire atop Mount Sinai. The presence of the glory of God is, is significant because it suggests God is going to act on behalf of his people. When the glory of the Lord shows up, God's about to act, and he's going to act on behalf of his people. The shepherds respond, as you might imagine, with great fear. I mean, come on. It's an angel in the glory of the Lord. I'd be terrified too. And this is a common response that we see all through Scripture. When angels show up, people were terrified. In fact, just one page earlier, Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1, he responds to the angel in fear. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, the apostle John falls down and starts to worship the angel that had shown him future events. Why? Because the appearance of just an angel was so incredible. This angel appears to lowly shepherds. The announcement was meant for all. It is meant for all. What are we saying here? We're saying this. The gospel is not exclusive. The gospel is not exclusive. The gospel came to be proclaimed to all. It's meant for everyone, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of social status. Jew and Gentile alike are meant to hear the gospel. Luke, by the way, is the only Gentile to have penned a gospel narrative. So it's easy to see why he incorporated this theme throughout his book that the gospel's meant for all, Jew and Gentile. You may have heard the phrase, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That means Jesus came for all mankind. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life, good or bad, the gospel is a message for you. The proclamation that Jesus has come is meant for you. All barriers are shattered by the gospel. When I was a boy, I tried to start a club one time. Anyone ever tried to start a club? I think it lasted for about one day. And I may have had one other member. I really don't even remember. But you know, it was a club meant for boys. It was no girls allowed. Just us boys hanging out and doing boy things, which really isn't any different from what we did every day anyway. That's not the gospel. The gospel's not exclusive. The gospel is not exclusive. It's meant for everyone. Now, I want to throw out a caution. I want us to be careful when we think about that because the gospel is not exclusive. That's absolutely true. But I don't want us to draw the wrong conclusion here and decide, well, if the gospel's not exclusive, then we should just completely ignore all our differences. I think that's the wrong conclusion because God did make us differently. He has given some more wealth, some more status than others. He's brought all of us up from various backgrounds. And by the way, that's God's choice to do. God created you who you are. He created every facet and every detail about you, and he shapes who you are. He brought you up from whatever background that you came from. He molded you into who you are. That was his prerogative. And because of those things, 
there is an appropriate level of distinction among us humans. There is. Certain people, for instance, don't qualify for certain universities because they don't measure up educationally. Most people do not become professional athletes because they just don't have the talent. I don't want us to draw the wrong conclusion by this. The gospel has no barriers, but that doesn't mean we should throw off all distinctions and just ignore and pretend they're not there. That's the wrong conclusion. The right conclusion is that we treat people with love, no matter who they are. The right conclusion is that because the gospel is exclusive, we love as God loves. The gospel is meant for everyone. And that is significant because, believe it or not, some people don't feel like they belong. Some people don't feel like the gospel's for them. Some people don't feel like church is for them. Some people don't feel like Jesus came for them because maybe their background or maybe the way they've messed up their lives or this or that. You know, I once worked with a guy. He literally said if he, if he walked into a church building, the church would probably fall on him. And he was joking, but you know what? Behind that joke was a heart that felt unwelcome. Behind that joke was a heart that felt unwelcome perhaps by other people, perhaps even by God. Friends, the gospel is meant for you. The gospel was meant for my friend. The gospel is meant for your neighbor. The gospel is meant for your coworkers. The gospel is meant for that crazy relative you know you're going to have to see here in a couple weeks. And no matter how frustrating some people can be, no matter how wicked some people can be, no matter what background some people may have come from, no matter what they've done in their life, the gospel is meant for them. Ponder that this Christmas. Ponder that as you think about who to invite for a Christmas Eve service. Who might God be putting on your heart to invite, even though they may rub you the wrong way? The gospel is meant for them. So the first thing we see from this is that the gospel is meant for all. The second thing we see is this. The gospel reveals the Savior. The gospel reveals the Savior. Will you follow along as I read in verse 10? And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, just as with Zechariah and Mary, the angel came to the shepherds for a, with a message, but the first thing he has to do is say, don't be afraid. Again, the natural response, he has to tell them, don't be afraid. I've come with a message. What message is that? I come to bring good news. That word for good news is the word euangelizo. It's the verbal form of the word for gospel, euangelion. I come to bring you the gospel. I come to bring you the good news. It's good news. It's meant for all people, and it's good news of great joy. Our response to this news should be a response of great joy. What is the news? Verse 11, for unto you, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
Again, unto you, that you there is plural. Again, just meant for everyone has come to you a Savior. A Savior has come for us all. Born this day in the city of David. Now, that's significant. The city of David was another name for Bethlehem. And the significance of that is this. That's where David was anointed. David, the greatest king Israel had ever seen, apart from Jesus. David, through whose line the Messiah had been promised. It's not by accident that the angel says city of David instead of Bethlehem. He's pointing to something here. The Messiah has coming has come. The promised one has come. The one through whom David was going to bring has come. Now at this time in history, the Jews were looking for the Messiah. And the scriptures prophesied the coming Messiah who would deliver them, and many thought that meant to deliver them from Rome. Rome had conquered most of the world at that time. They had no idea of the level of deliverance that the Messiah meant to bring. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the heart of the angel's message right there. Now, the word Savior, it's interesting the, the terminology the angel uses here because at this time in history, Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, had come to be known as a Savior. In fact, there's an inscription called the Calendar Inscription of Prien that records an edict by Paulus, Favius Maximus. Don't you love that name? Anyone would love to have that name? Paulus Favius Maximus. On this inscription, there's a couple of interesting things. One, Caesar Augustus is referred to as a savior who has been sent by providence to benefit humankind. The second thing on that inscription is that the birth of Augustus was the beginning of what they thought of as good tidings or euangelio the gospel or a gospel. See, many, specifically the Romans, looked to, see, to Caesar as their savior. That's how he was viewed. That's what was going on in history. And then we get to Luke chapter 2, and God announces the true savior. The true savior has been born, and he is no man. The angel then gives these titles to the savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, Christ was a title. I had a junior high friend way back in the day who thought Christ was his last name. No, Christ is a title, like William the Conqueror. It's a title. Christ is the Greek equivalent of Messiah. He is the deliverer. He is the anointed one. He is the promised one. If you know Harry Potter, he's the chosen one. The one we've been waiting for. That's who the Christ is. And then he calls him Lord, kurios, which means having power. It's a word that we translate into master or sir. In one sense, it was just a general word. Anyone who was over you in authority, you would refer to as kurios. You would refer to as Lord or master. But you know what? As the New Testament unfolds, that word kurios more and more and more relates to Jesus, who is the ultimate Lord, the ultimate master. The angel tells him the Christ, the Lord, has come. And then he tells him where to find him, or actually how to find him. Look at verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The angel gives a sign to them 
how to find the Savior. And the implication is, go find him. He's not just giving this sign just as, as, as useless words. He's saying, go find him. Curious enough, Zechariah, in chapter 1, when the angel visits, he actually asks for a sign. After the angel Gabriel tells him that John the Baptist will be born, he asks for a sign as if the appearance of an angel wasn't enough. And in response, Gabriel strikes Zechariah dumb. Be careful when you ask for a sign. But here, the sign is given without them asking. They may have just been in too much shock to even think about it. Who knows? But the sign is given a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Now, a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths was not unusual. Swaddling cloths were strips of material to swaddle a baby. We do that today. That's absolutely normal. All babies back then probably had swaddling cloths. And if the angel had stopped there, the shepherds would have thought, there's got to be a dozen babies out there. Which one is it? But he doesn't stop there. He says, lying in a manger. It was very unlikely that another child would be lying in a manger. So you put these three things together, baby, swaddling cloths, manger, and they're sure to find him. The Savior has come. You know, we've spent the last two weeks talking about the need and the promise of the Messiah. The need was great. The promise of the Messiah came because the need was great. We were hopeless. We were lost in our sins. We were in darkness. But now the Messiah has come. And what does that mean? That means hope. What is Christmas all about? It's about God stepping down into our world to be our Savior. It's about hope. See, he he didn't leave us to meander through this life lost in our sin. He came down to give us hope. Your Savior has come to give you hope. What does that mean in our everyday lives? It means if you're a Christian, that you are no longer a victim of the enemy. You are no longer a victim of the enemy's traps. The Savior has come. That gives us hope. That means that you are no longer enslaved by the weakness of human flesh. It means, as Romans 6.18 says, you have been set free from sin. That's the hope that the Savior brings. You are no longer held prisoner by the cords of sin that strap you down and enslave us. You have been set free, child of God. Romans 6.11 reads, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what our coming Savior means. That's the hope that he brings. Brothers and sisters, do you tell yourselves that daily? Do you preach the gospel to yourself daily that the Savior has come that you are dead to sin. When temptation comes along, do you say to yourself, I am dead to that. I am not a slave of that. I don't belong to that. I belong to God. That's what the coming Savior means to us. You know, as enticing as sin is, you and I know it's not worth the bondage. You are dead to sin, church. 
and you are alive to God. Why? Because your Savior has come. He's come and he gives hope. Let me challenge you. Ponder that on Christmas morning. When you're with your kids opening gifts, that's a wonderful time. I look forward to that time every year. But don't let it pass you by without pondering, what does this all mean? It means that the ultimate gift, the Savior, has come and he has set us free from the bondage of sin. The announcement reveals the Savior. Last point. The announcement proclaims the work of reconciliation. The announcement proclaims the work of reconciliation. Follow along as I read verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Suddenly, all at once, boom. They weren't there, and then they were there. And this idea of a sudden appearance of angels or a sudden appearance of something miraculous or something crazy happening is used elsewhere in Scripture. It was used at the Pentecost, at the sudden coming of the Holy Spirit. It was used of the sudden appearance of Jesus to Paul on the road to Damascus, and it's used to describe the suddenness of future events. See, it's the idea that the normal every day was happening, and then boom, God did something. We might use the term out of the blue. It boom happened. The angel that brought the message is now joined by a multitude of the heavenly host. That word multitude is used elsewhere in Luke when speaking of a great crowd. And the word host, that's used of an army which is very appropriate to angels. I know sometimes we kind of think of angels as these cute little cherubs. They're soldiers. That's why when you see an angel, it's terrifying. It's not cute. You won't find that in the Bible. And he looked and said, the angel was cute. Not there. They're a host. They're an army. They're warriors. And that's what shows up to praise God. What a magnificent sight that would have been. Standing there, watching this army of angels surrounded by the glory of God, and we hear this message. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What are they doing in that verse? The first thing they're doing is they're ascribing glory to God. Now, I told you just a little bit, of, little bit ago that Glory to God is like light is to bulb, is like heat is to flame, yes. But you know what? Glory is also something we attribute to something else. Glory is something we attribute to something else. It's recognition. It's attention. You know, when a well-known athlete runs onto the field and everyone cheers, what is that? It's ascribing recognition. It's ascribing attention. It's ascribing glory. The angels are saying glory to God. Let God be recognized. Let God get the attention because of this marvelous act of sending the Savior. God gets the glory. But man gets something too. Man gets peace. 
Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Now, peace, peace is harmony. The angels are saying, man can now return to a state of harmony with God. They're not proclaiming a general sense of peace as in the absence of war. They're declaring a peace between God and man like we had in the garden. Peace, harmony. Who gets this peace and harmony? All of us. It says, among those with whom he is pleased. Anthropos Eutychius in Greek. And it means favored men. The NIV actually translates this the best. It reads, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That's the idea. This verse does not mean all people everywhere get peace. I know we sing about that at Christmas time. Some of the songs that we sing talk about peace on earth with everyone, but that's not what the angel's message was. It's peace to those on whom the sovereign favor of God rests. It's those who accept this Savior. Those are the ones who experience this peace, this reconciliation with God. Hence, salvation by grace through faith is implied in Luke 2.14. It was out of the grace of God that he sent Jesus to bridge the gap and bring salvation, and it's only accepted by faith in Christ. Only those who by faith accept the gift are saved, are reconciled, and have this peace. God, by sending his son, the Savior, bridges the gap between sinful man and holy God. He reconciles fallen man to himself. This declaration is proclaiming the work of reconciliation. Jesus has come to do this work so that you and I might have fellowship with God. Romans 5.11 reads, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. By the way, that word reconciliation, the, the, the definition would be a reestablishment of a broken relationship. A reestablishment of a broken relationship. In the garden, man sinned and broke the relationship between himself and God, and Jesus came to repair that. Sorry, I'm going to give you another childhood story. Once when I was a kid, I got into a fight with one of my friends. Words were said, blows were made. You know how boys are. Well, later that evening, I was telling my dad about it, and he encouraged me. He had the gall to tell me to go down the street to my friend's house, talk to him, and apologize. I was very excited about that. I didn't want to do it, but I did. And we were reconciled. The relationship was repaired. And that's great. But you know, reconciliation was not that easy between us and God. See, our reconciliation with God needed a much grander act than a mere apology. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they couldn't just say, you know, we're sorry. God's like, oh, that's okay. Go back in the garden. 
Because sin had entered the world and sin needed to be paid for. In order to reconcile God with man, God had to come down because God was the one we offended. God had to do the work of reconciliation because we couldn't do it. We had an unpayable debt toward God. God had to pay the price of sin, which, by the way, was death. He took it upon himself to do a work we had no hope of doing. The act of God, it took an act of God to do the work of reconciliation. And Christ's coming was the beginning of this work. His birth meant that God had taken action to reverse the curse. Of course, at this point in the story, Jesus' death hadn't happened yet. His resurrection hadn't taken place. The work wasn't finished, but it had begun. The miraculous had happened. God had taken on human flesh. The announcement reveals the work of reconciliation. Now, how do we respond to this marvelous act of reconciliation? Well, first I would ask you this. Have you been reconciled to God? Have you responded to God's offer of salvation by trusting Jesus as your Savior? God came to pay the price for your sin and my sin. Have you repented of your sin? Have you trusted Jesus' work on the cross to reconcile you to God? If not, if that's not you, if you've never come to Christ in faith for the salvation that he offers, you can do it right now. In the quietness of your heart, you can pray a prayer like this. Jesus, Thank you that you took on the work of reconciliation. Thank you that you came down, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died on that cross, then rose from the dead so my sin could be paid for. Forgive me of my sins. I believe in you. Amen. Now, if you've just prayed that, would you come tell me after the service? I just want to connect with you. Would you come do that if you prayed that prayer this morning? Perhaps if you have more questions, again, come grab me. Come grab one of our elders. We'd be happy to answer the questions you have. Now, for those of us who've already received Christ, how do we respond to this passage? It's good news of great joy. Respond like the angels. Rejoice that the Messiah has come. Sing praise to his name for his marvelous work of reconciliation. This is Christmas when we remember and celebrate Jesus' birth. But this should be something we celebrate every single day. We should recognize daily and rejoice daily that peace with God is offered to us. We're going to get a chance to sing here in a few minutes with our closing song. But let me ask you, do you take time daily to praise God? Do you take time each day to ascribe worth to the King? I love that song we sang, is he worthy? He is. Ascribe worth to the King. Give him the glory that is due his name. And let me add something else. What else can we do with this message? Do you take time each day to reflect 
on what this announcement meant. The Savior has come. The gospel, the good news is here. Do you reflect on the gospel every day? This is a work of reconciliation that Jesus did. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a, I said a prayer way back when. It's the work of reconciliation that is ongoing. Christ does that in our hearts, ongoing for the rest of our lives. It's called sanctification. It's growing more and more and more to be like Christ through our lives because we're not perfect. Fellow Christians, do you run to the gospel every day? Does the fact that angels praised God Almighty for sending our Savior into the world some 2,000 years ago impact your life today? Are you running to this gospel message every day? Are you resting in the work he's already done? Or are you striving to do the work in your own strength? Said differently, are you trying to live a good life because you feel like you have to, to earn God's favor? Are you coming to church? Are you studying God's word? Are you trying to be kind to others? Are you sharing the gospel because you feel like you have to? out of a sense of duty, because you think God won't be happy with you if you don't. Beloved, you can't earn God's favor. If you're a believer in Christ, you already have it. When you are tempted to think, I have to do this, I have to do that, I'm failing as a Christian, preach the gospel to yourself. You are a favored child of God who's already been granted peace with him. You can't add to his work. Rest in the knowledge that you are favored. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's the announcement that tops all other announcements. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, thank you that you are the only way of salvation. Thank you that you did not leave us in our miserable state, groping in the darkness. Thank you that you did not leave us in our sin. Thank you that you saw fit to become human and to come and live among us and die in our place. Lord, let that truth go deeper in our hearts this week and throughout this Christmas season. Thank you for the hope we have in you. Forgive us of our sin and the mess that it's made and redeem every part of our lives through the power of your gospel. Change us so that we may live lives that shine your gospel message to the world around us. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' awesome name, amen.